Chus, welcome back. We are again at ThingsCon. Yeah, or and still. Still, yeah. still. So we just recorded uh, Dark Side of Design 1, and now it's uh, you and myself, but with a different guest this time. We have Amy Elliott out of Simply Secure, and I will, I'll let her introduce herself so I don't absolutely butcher things I'm supposed to say. So Amy, if you would like to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you do, who you are. Uh, yes, I would, thank you. Uh, so hello, um, I am a UX designer. Um, I live in Berlin, where I have been about a year and a half. And I spent the uh, 20 years before that in Silicon Valley, uh, most recently working for IDEO in, uh, in San Francisco, doing um, tech strategy for global companies, uh, companies like Samsung, Acer, Ericsson. And um, before that, uh, I was a research scientist at uh, Xerox PARC and uh, Rico Innovations. So start, starting from a academic human-computer interaction point of view, I had a chance to, to spend some time in Silicon Valley, kind of coming up from like the mid-90s until last year. And then I made a major life change and um, joined Simply Secure, which is a US-based nonprofit uh, that focuses on privacy, security, and, and ethics, and uh, relocated to Berlin. Now, for those of you who have been listening for quite some time, we often talk about privacy, security, designers' roles in those. And Achus, you specifically mentioned Amy on the podcast before. Yep. So Amy has spoken more often at ThingsCon here in Amsterdam. And last time there was something that left me with a with a big impression after the talk. And I, I think for our listeners, that's also something that's been coming back. So what you told last time on stage was how you felt that in, in the early times of the internet, doing your role as a UX designer, you wanted to make apps or services more personal and adapt to the user. And we can do that better if we know who the user is. And of course, Many designers doing those things created a need for certain tooling or tools or scripts to be created. And then a little while after you realized actually that you're contributing to surveillance tools being made and integrated into everything we use and own. We, we've talked about that more than once because it's something that we also feel and, and we want to make people aware of that. How has your, uh, your opinion evolved since that talk? You know, um, I think that I'm really appreciating the role that uh, user researchers can play in shifting this conversation. I came up through user research, and um, I historically had a, a somewhat negative opinion of, of marketing and thought, oh, these are surveys, and it, it's just you know people filling in questionnaires, and, and wouldn't it be better if we had real use, and it was naturalistic, and... I worked really hard with some very smart colleagues on instrumenting websites, and I truly believed that that was going to help us understand behavior in a naturalistic way. And I heartily supported A-B testing and you know, trying to just continuously go through improvements to make sure that our products and services improved. And over time, I think that internet changed in some ways, specifically related to an advertising-driven business model. But the industry also changed, where these things are so codified, and you know, looking at server logs, and you know what's your bounce rate, and, and all of this kind of, of lingo is put in this expectation that you have to continuously gather all kinds of, of data, even if you're not sure what you're going to do with it. So I think for me, the evolution is, as someone that's um, now living and working in Europe, I'm very curious to see how upcoming GDPR regulations are going to change this, because a, a lot of, of that kinds of data is now very high risk and companies yep. are financially vulnerable if they don't take care. 
So, Chus, describe GDPR for a second, or Amy, either either way, because our listeners are not all European. Well, we, we can describe the intention of GDPR, and uh, it's a new Europe-wide uh, legislation that's going to start uh, the end of May 2018, the 28th. And before that, people in Europe will start to get pop-ups on all of their apps, almost all of their apps, is my expectation. Because companies are now no longer allowed to store personal data, and there's a large list of what personal data means, about you without specific consent for each and every purpose that they're using it for. So instead of us now accepting uh, permissions on Android or iOS for we don't know what it's for, we just know what sensor it's using, uh, they have to go to simply saying, well, we listen to your microphone and store your voice profile for recognition. Uh, are we allowed to do this? And GDPR states a lot more things where uh, third parties have to be mentioned. So if anything is not stored on the company's servers that you have an interaction with, but they work with a third party for voice recognition, whatever, this all has to be mentioned. So the intention of this legislation is to open up a can of worms on anybody that is uh, just secretly collecting data. But the intention is also that this goes for any European citizen. So this, this legislation is supposed to cross border. And I'm very curious if you think that will succeed. I'm really not sure. And uh, I'm optimistic that it can start to shift the conversation. But frankly, from a multinational corporation point of view, May is really soon. And there still seems to be so many unknowns. So yep. we know that GDPR uh, stands for General Data Protection Regulation. And there's a lot of really uh, compelling protection language in there so that individual people have to give consent either through a contract or you know, through some other kind of mechanism. They have a right to be forgotten and they need to understand how their data is used. And from a UX design point of view, we, as a profession, we don't actually know how to communicate those things in any kind of way at scale. And every company is going to have to scramble to, to figure this out. It's a yeah. huge design challenge. Yeah. I, I, so I recently had a, an experience that I didn't expect to happen yet so early. I was playing around with some Google APIs in the developer console, and I needed to um, get an authentication mechanism to work. So you go through the flow, and you get this form, and then there was this one page that I'd never seen before. And you actually had to fill in a form to create your consent flow for GDPR. So Google actually already is making developers who are just playing around aware that if you want a user to log in and therefore identify themselves, this is obligatory from now on. Some of the big companies are ready, but I know there are lots of small companies that are not ready. For instance, small startups that allow you to register but have no uh, delete account button yet. All those companies have the potential of getting in trouble. Um, and I'm, I'm super curious if who are going to be the first examples? Will this be chased by government in the beginning or? I mean, I don't know. And I'm not a lawyer. And the documents to my like, designer eye, they're very dense. It's all this legal language. That's not actually that interesting to me. Like as a designer, what I care about are mechanisms for transparency. And I think that that is so exciting. And we need more people working on this more general problem of transparency. And, mm -hmm. you know, and that's true across a whole spectrum of things, not just like marketing data, but also thinking about machine learning and, and thinking about you know artificial intelligence applications and how do people, either me as a user or me as a um, an operator, understand why these systems are making the decisions that they're making? Was it made yeah. by an algorithm? Was it made by a person? Exactly, and this is 
kind of the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide deep think problem where we know the answer from machine learning and we know the answer is probably correct, but we don't know how it got to the answer. And GDPR actually states that when you're taking a certain machine learning or computer algorithm-based decision on a person, you're only allowed to do that if you can inform them how you got to that decision. And machine learning at this moment is in a really easy to deploy state where you cannot give that reasoning. So I, I want to I come back. I'm going to diverge a little bit. We can come back to machine learning. But I want to go back to the beginning when you were talking about the instrumentation of websites or whatever it may be, applications. We seem to have reached this moment where we're saying all this data collection is bad. And it's bad because people know too much about me. But let me, let me play the other side of the coin and say we wanted this. We sit there and we gladly accept products that cater to us. And we say, please give us better recommendations. Give us, you know, whether that's on Uber saying, I think you're going here because, you know, you're going to Y because you're already at X, or whether that's Amazon telling me what books I want. So why are we trying to stop this? We literally have said, we want this. Why are we pulling back all of a sudden? Is it, is it just no one was paying attention and all of a sudden people didn't realize what they were doing, which is their own damn fault as far as I'm concerned. But I'm curious, you know, your take on this. I think that over the past year, there's been a lot of reflection on like what is the state of the internet. And I know as someone that really fell in love with the 90s era internet, I had a complete faith that getting more people online would make us more tolerant and more open and expose us to more different points of view and would be this amazing force for connecting people and flow of ideas. And I think just taking kind of the... Um, online social media landscape, that's not really what happened. I mean, you know, instead, you know, things, the conversation is incredibly polarized and there's an incredible amount of hostility. So if I, if I take that and um, move out of the social media landscape and into the, the app landscape, I think that some of the same moments of pause that longtime users of the internet and, and apps are having about social media are also kind of flowing into apps. And the possibility of, of misuse is real and it's um, a little overwhelming to think about what we would actually do differently. Wait, wait, wait. Misuse to who? Because I, I think we can then sit around and say, social media-wise, Facebook is misused for X, Y, and Z reasons, but clearly the people who are using it that way don't see as misuse. And when I go back, there's a great uh, Recode Decode. Uh, I don't know if you listen to that podcast. You know who Kara Swisher is out of? Okay. So she was interviewing, God, who was it? LinkedIn founder, Reed... Hoffman. Hoffman, thank you. I get Hastings, Hoffman, confused. But this this whole sort of aspect of what's going on in social media and the, the, the sort of evilness and the cesspool of Twitter. But of course, the people who are doing this, some of them, yes, are just uh, jerks. Some of them don't feel that way. Some of them feel that what they're doing is right and what we're doing is wrong. So why are we the social justice warriors that are deciding this? I'm not really comfortable with the phrase social justice warriors because I think that it's been kind of weaponized in some ways that make it hard to actually talk about like legitimate issues about online spaces. And the bottom line is um, right now the internet is pretty closed and there aren't very many public social media spaces. They're very rare. There are private companies where private companies can, can set the rules in the, uh, the agenda. 
And that's a kind of systematic failure of multiple parties to develop like open alternatives that would actually be public. So I think the ways that, you know, which country's laws should govern cyberspace is, is very kind of lawyer and, and legalistic. But to me, the, the misuse thing is um, maybe a, a example as, um, you know, recently there was an article that came out about um, these YouTube videos targeted at very young children, like toddlers, that are um, unexpectedly very violent. Like they're um, doing some subtle tweaks on recognizable characters like Disney princesses or Spider-Man. And they seem to be generated algorithmically. And they're paid YouTube accounts where they're actually making, uh, making money the more people watch them. Yeah. They have millions of page views. So they're coming up really high in, in the content. And um, they're, they're just weird and kind of off. And I don't know who the just weird and kind of off um, police are, but it's something that you could you could see like, oh, it's actually really upsetting for you know a three-year-old who found this content because a tired parent entered in you know the keywords of like ABC learn with uh, Elsa, and then the actual video you know a minute or two in g gets very violent and, and disturbing. Yeah. And it, it almost felt on purpose because once I figured out that this existed and me not having kids of my own, I wouldn't realize these things that they exist until this comes out like that. I'm curious if there was like a mastermind behind this because I, I don't understand how they're making money <laughs> with scaring kids. If they can algorithmically make videos that kids want to watch, why do they have this weird twist in it? And I'm very happy that YouTube took immediate action there and was like, okay, we're, we can find these videos out and we're just going to turn all of that off. But yeah, that was a, a big scare. I have a, I have a question. So we say machine learning and big data being collected by companies and, and through the cloud, basically, because all of this machine learning happens on other people's computers. Apple recently started to make a selling point of their privacy statement and of the way they process their data. And their privacy statement is now actually a beautifully written web page that is written towards actual people that buy the devices versus towards actual lawyers to cover their own ground. What do you, what do you think of that? I, mean, I think that's exciting. And uh, I know that there have been, um, I don't know if the parody is the right word, of the iTunes um, terms of service, like mm -hmm. written out as this multi-page kind of graphic novel in different styles. So. Yeah. I definitely think there's a potential for a differentiator there. And um, I think Apple is smart to call themselves out as different from, for example, Google um, in that arena and help people understand the implications of not only their product, but the, the ecosystem that, that comes with it. Yeah. Uh, how do you see privacy or security being leveraged as, I'll say, a strategic asset for companies going forward? Or do you even see it as one? I, mean, I hope that it becomes one, but I'm really not sure what to think. I mean, I think, um, again, I, I come out of the American context, so I'm kind of over-indexing on, on those kinds of examples. But, um, for example, the Equifax credit reporting system breach has really serious consequences for tens of millions of people. They're not going to be able to move apartments or get cars. They could be turned down for jobs. I mean, real-life consequences. And I've been uh, consistently surprised that 
there wasn't this mass public outcry because like the way that capitalism works is like things like houses and cars are supposed to be exchangeable like you should be able to buy one or, or sell one and this is going to block that systematically people won't be able to get loans they're not going to be able to do stuff and um, you know the coverage pretty much sank and it, it's not a, been a big topic and uh, I don't know I would say it's the same reason for why no one cares about collecting data is because you don't see the effects, right? Nothing, if there is somebody threatening to punch you, you see an immediate threat. If you read in a newspaper that there was this hack, first off, you even have to understand what that means, which I would say for a solid set of Americans or many people across the world, they wouldn't even understand what that meant, right? Like your personal information was grabbed by somebody. Okay, well, I'm one in, you know, 100 million. I didn't win the lottery when I played, so nothing's going to happen to me here. So I think there's a sort of cause and effect situation that comes into play, whereas there is no immediate results. Maybe there was results 10 years down the road, but then you're going to forget what even caused it. I mean, definitely. I mean, I think during my time at IDEO, I was really inspired by a lot of the, um, the thinking about financial services. And there was recently... Um, a profile of, of Leslie Witt, who's since left IDEO and is now a, a VP um, of design at Intuit on bringing design into finances and financial well-being and helping people make good decisions. And I was I was inspired by that. And I, I think that the financial system is an example of a system where bringing a design approach to it can lead to some new and exciting outcomes. And I want to bring that same kind of excitement and enthusiasm into some of these hard, systematic, you know, ethical issues that in some ways, okay, it's a, like finance, maybe a little legal, you know, maybe you have a stereotype that it's too boring, but I think there's a huge opportunity for design. I think that's where another piece of new legislation or supposed to be legislation comes in, which is the PSD2. It's something that's going to happen 2018, November. G slated. Give the very quick summary. Basically, it says that any bank in Europe needs to have an API for third-party companies to be able to access customers' data if they do desire so, meaning that the finance apps that are happening in the US, like Mint and whatever, is currently a problem in Europe because of privacy laws and because of banks not wanting to cooperate, and that actually will legally need to be opened up by banks. So it basically creates a new pond for fintechs to grow and actually uh, compete against banks. So this space will become a lot bigger in Europe in the next year or so. All right, so watching the time, making sure we keep, keep things a little bit shorter here. Amy, I'm going to look at you, and I, I told you this at the, uh, at the beginning. So we've talked about some aspects on collecting information. We've talked about um, situations around, I would say, you know, how that information is then used to cater to people in different ways. But for designers specifically, what do you think are one, two, or three things that you would want somebody to walk away with, designers to walk away with when it comes to security and privacy topics? Um, well, just starting with really basics, uh, phishing, like scam emails, trying to impersonate your, your bank or whatever, is a really um, interesting example of how designers can form relationships with people in their organizations on the technical security side. So one of the really strong defenses against uh, these phishing attacks is having a style guide. And there's a lot of non-technical roles, such as skilled copywriters, having crisp brand guidelines, really being um, attentive to the use of color. Like none of this, someone grabs the eyedropper tool and like samples off of some other, you know, PDF or something, like really pick the right colors. So that your um, communication with your, your customers or your audience or your users 
has a, a, a tone and a brand and, and a feeling. And that actually makes it much harder to uh, impersonate your, your company. So a lot of the phishing emails that you get are just ridiculous and dumb and no one would, would, would fall for them. But one of the reasons that you can say that they're ridiculous is because they don't, they don't have that, that kind of skill. So I want designers to move into leadership positions by taking on some of these challenges. And I think one way that they can get there is by bringing the skills that they have. I mean, brand people have this stuff cold. They have for years. Like, it's not like this big news that you should have a style guide. No one on the security team is aware that style guides exist. They have colleagues, maybe down the hall or at their lunch table, that could help them, and there's no relationship there. So I want designers to kind of insert themselves in that conversation. That I, I absolutely love that. I, I think, like what you said, brand has it down set, and then so many times I almost see designers get frustrated with the brand side of, why do you have to control things so much? Why do you, why can't you let us have freedom? And I think this is a good example of why control can lead to better outcomes and, and safer outcomes. So, Chus, any last sentence? Nope. No. Nope. I, I think I'm impressed by the last idea. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, yeah, Chus, I'll see you next week. Yeah, bye. Later. <laughs>